when church going turns useless. Hearing God's word like your life depended on it. In 1650, an English reform pastor was trying to put together material for people who were coming to Christ, people who were getting saved. Do you hear that tweet, 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 tweet sound? What is that? Everybody listen. What is that noise? Well, then turn it off. Sixteen fifty, he wrote a book because he wanted to have materials to give to new converts, people who were getting saved. And he did. He put together a book. This is the book. Richard Baxter's Practical Works, a Christian Directory. This is written for new Christians, and they were all expected to study it. I don't know if you've got a camera that will work for this. You probably don't. There's, the, there's your basic print size. Can any of you, is that on the screens? So there you go. There's no connect the dots. There's no pictures. Nothing to color. And so new Christians were expected to study this or study these uh, 1,231 pages. And they did. They read it. And I got that when I was in Bible school. I've, I don't think I could honestly say I've read it right through. I've read most of it. I want to quote something from it because he talked about how Christians go to church. Here's what he said. It's a little bit old English, but it's not undecipherable. You'll be able to figure out what he's saying. Okay, I'm serious. That is driving me insane. Somebody turn that off. See, and I know where the switch is, and I, I'm wondering why I don't see anyone walking to that room to turn off those fans. But somebody, w there, now somebody is. Here's what he said. Come not to hear God's word with a careless heart, as you were to hear a matter, a matter that little concerned you. But come to hear the word with a sense of unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequence of the holy word which you are to hear. And when you understand how much you are concerned in it and truly love it as the word of life, then it will greatly help your understanding of every particular truth. That which a man loveth not and perceiveth no necessity of, he will hear but with so little regard and heed that it will make no considerable impression on his mind. That's a really good quote. I was, I was particularly fascinated with that middle section of the quote where, where he says, when you understand how much you are concerned in it and truly love it as the word of life, 
then it will greatly help your understanding of every particular truth. I hope you see the logic in that. In other words, the difference, the difference in the way people listen to God's word preached has more to do with their hearts than with their ears. That there's a kind of understanding that, that won't come to me, to you, to anyone. There's a kind of understanding. The mind won't work properly until the heart, the heart says, I, I am deeply concerned in this truth. This is my life. And, and it's the heart that opens up the mind. He's saying that when someone doesn't understand what the preached word means, it might be because the preacher is just mentally dull or dense or, heaven forbid, both. But just as likely, the understanding problem has a different root. Just as likely, the hearer is hearing, but not hearing with all of his or her heart. Baxter again, quote, when you understand how much you are concerned in it and truly love it as the word of life, then you will understand. It's not an IQ thing. It's a heart thing. He's saying there are two different kinds of understanding involved whenever we hear God's word. He's dealing with it preached. Read, but he's dealing with it preached. Two different kinds of understanding. The one kind he mentions, understanding the meaning of the text, what the words mean, what the sentences mean, what the paragraphs mean, that that, that kind of understanding, it comes second in sequence. It's interesting. The first understanding that he describes is what he calls understanding how much you are concerned in the text. That's a quote. So so he's saying, understanding the meaning of God's word. Remember, he's talking to brand new Christians. And it's a profound thought that he's giving them. Understanding the meaning of God's word comes, first of all, from hungering to have it dominate your being. So, so, so the understanding of the mind comes about through more than just mere mental activity. It comes from a heartfelt awareness of, of the importance of the teaching moment. That's where understanding starts. That's a pretty precise explanation of what the writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 2, 1 to 5. My son, if you receive my words, so this is a listening text. If you receive my words, and now note the verbs here. Treasure up my commandments with you making your ear attentive to wisdom. Look at this one. Inclining your heart to what? What does that mean? I mean, you just heard the sentences. You, you know, I'm speaking English. You know the meaning of the words. So, so just because 
your ear picks up the wavelengths, your mind, these are just noises. If you were here and you didn't speak English, this makes no sense at all, right? But your mind knows how to interpret it. So I say the sentences, your brain, there's an eardrum there, it vibrates, then your brain says, there's the meaning of the words. Now, is that the same thing as inclining your heart? I don't think so. It isn't, is it? That's just hearing. An atheist can sit here and hear all the words and understand what they mean. He gets it. So so that's not what Baxter was talking about, and it's not what the writer of Proverbs is talking about when he says, and and if you'll just tilt your heart, (laughs) incline your heart to understanding. Then he says, yeah, if you call out for insight, raise your voice. To whom? I think what he means is, oh, God, I'm not sure I'm ready to hear. I've got so many things on my mind, problems enough. Oh, God, help me to hear you today. Help me to hear you today. And I didn't pray at the beginning. Let's do it right here. We deal with, with, with someone infinitely great when we come into church in a very specific way. We, we, we deal with God. How many times that word, G-O-D, how many times that little word has rolled off our lips Newmarket doesn't need more tinkering with religious ideas, nor do we. What we need is that word God to land on our hearts with 10,000 times the weight that it has. Just the fact that you have always been, that you never had a beginning. That, that there was a time before there was any space. Before there was even such a thing as emptiness. Pushed back into eternity when all there, all there was was the being of God. There forever and ever without ever coming into existence. Everything else coming into being but God never coming into being. Never going out of being. That that the whole universe is is secondary. God is primary. The streets, the houses, the parks, the buildings, the oceans, the mountains, the stars, the galaxies. Those are all secondary. They're all dependent. They all fade away and you remain God. So we come in here and we want to hear God speak to us. And I pray that you will incline our hearts into truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.
My son, if you receive my words, treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive, inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, search for it as hidden treasures. So all of that's preamble leading up to this sentence. Then, then understanding comes. So you see the same point as Baxter is trying to make. It's not, a, it's not just a mental thing. It's a heart thing. The point is you can't just snatch up truth listening to God's word the way you snatch up content from a novel or a movie. The point is that the priority God places on devout listening is, is very high. That, that, that he refuses to yield the treasures of his will, the treasures of his truth. He refuses to give those things to half-listeners. We should be concerned about that. That should matter to us. You can sit through a class you're not really interested in. I did it. You've done it. Jot down some notes, and if you're mentally sharp enough, you can get a good enough mark to pass, and you get your credit. There you go. But you can't get spiritual truth that way. You can't. You can never grow spiritually on the truth of God's word because... Not like that, because God only responds to passionate, hungry-hearted listeners. And so, so the question I want to ask myself, and here's what we're doing in this message. You might have thought that was the message. It's not. Here, I'm just telling you what we're doing. What keeps me from being that kind of listener? Point number one. Here are the things that keep us from being that type of listener. We live in a world that promotes and facilitates half-listening. You've seen it. You walk through the mall, wherever you go, everywhere you turn, you pass people who are strolling along with either, if they're old school, two little cables coming down or just jacks stuck in their ears. You you think they're talking to somebody. You don't see anyone around them, and there they come. Yeah, well, I think we're just going to do, uh, and, and you just go with them. They're looking at you. You see them. They go into a store. They pick up merchandise. They take out a credit card. They sign, or they tap. And all the while, they're listening to something totally different in their heads. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to be getting done, but you're not the object of their attention. They just know how to process the task at hand while they're listening to something else. It might be a song, a story, a book, fiction, nonfiction, might even be the Bible. But the point is, we are, we are as a culture, getting more and more immersed in a multi-billion dollar industry whose sole mission is to feed the habit of listening to one thing while doing something else. So, so the same slice of time is now divided between at least two activities, one of which is listening, 
only half listening. Increasingly, we are trained not to give all of our attention to just one thing. We have convinced ourselves that we don't have time for that. We focus all our mental energy deeply on just one thing less and less frequently. Please understand, my, my point is not just to castigate technology, but my plea is, my plea is that we all remember this habit of half-listening is it's not easily turned off when we start to deal with God. It becomes a part of us. And my point is, and the way I was trying to pray, God, God is too big to be heeded merely as one object of attention. He's much too big for that. The process of actually growing in faith through listening to God's Word, it demands, it demands deep listening, full-time listening. You, you can't really be doing something else while you're listening to God's Word. It's a very demanding business. Here's how God expresses his opinion on this through one of the prophets, Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I look. That grabs me. Anybody else want to be that person? I do. The kind of person to whom God looks. Now, God looks at everybody. I mean, he knows what everybody's doing everywhere all the time. He knows what everybody's thinking. He knows what everybody's saying. So this means something else, right? This means something else. This is, this is the one God is looking for. Oh, look at that. Oh, that's special, God says. That, that's a person I want to set my heart on. Well, what kind of person is it? He who is... Humble, I take that to be teachable, instantly shaped. Contrite in spirit, and here it is, trembles at my word. Just, you, you pick it up and you see something of God and, and you just start to shake. Oh, oh my goodness. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing like this on Netflix. This is huge. I'm trying to take it all in, and, and my, mind just, my mind just starts to tremble when I see the greatness of God. This isn't half listening, the one who trembles at my word. This isn't, trembling isn't casual. Whatever else, it's not casual. It isn't. It, it's, it's being moved. It's, it's someone who, upon exposure to God's word, is so filled up with awe, or joy, or perhaps fear, hopefully sometimes fear, dread, hunger, desire, that God's word plus nothing else just shakes his whole being. God says he fixes his attention on that kind of person. 
So that's one thing that keeps us from hearing God's word like this. The habit, our culture's habit of raising up half-listeners. Two, sometimes we're looking for something more dramatic, more visual than the mere text of God's word. And there's this fascinating account that, to my mind, pinpoints this very issue. It's in Luke chapter 16, 19 to 31. You got your Bible? Get it out. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Jesus is the speaker. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. It's not a very pretty picture. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Told you it's not a very pretty picture. Here's this guy. He can't even push the dogs away. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, this torment, he he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, this is the rich man calling out, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Flame. Flame, it says. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in anguish the text doesn't say the rich man is there because he was rich and the other one's not because he's poor that's just a description of the facts and besides all this verse 26 between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us And he said, this is the rich man now, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my house. I have five brothers. Send Lazarus. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest lest they also come into this place of torment. So there it is again, a place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. That's... That's this part of your Bible. They have, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And here's the money sentence. Abraham says, he said to him, if, if, if they do not hear, so now we're talking about listening, right? How you hear God's word. So Baxter was talking about, Proverbs was talking about it, same topic here. 
if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, so it's how you hear God's word. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What a story. Jesus, uh, one way or another, different people do different things with this passage. But he he pulls back the curtain a bit on, on some form of the afterlife. Some think this is a parable. I personally, I don't think it's a parable. I don't think it's a parable. My reason simply is we have no other parable in Scripture where Jesus gives names to his characters. That doesn't mean it's impossible for it to be a parable. I'm simply saying this does not fit into the way Jesus told parables. That's all I'm saying. It's not the main point, and it doesn't matter for what I'm going to say next. The central issue is, is the reality of Incredible blessedness after this life and unimaginable torment, apparently, as well. And, and the final point of the parable is nailing down this key issue. How, how do we help people find blessedness and how do we help people avoid punishment? That's the issue, surely. How do we help people find blessedness in the afterlife? How do we help people avoid torment? And right at that point, there are two different opinions that emerge. They're right in the story. The rich man's whole case is this. People will respond to truth if it comes in a way that is more dramatic than simply proclaimed in the Old Testament scriptures. That's the rich man's point, right? Look at it in 25 to 30 again. I think I've got that on a slide for you. Yes. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he is comforted here. You're in anguish. Abraham's still speaking. 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, I can't imagine why they'd want to do that, may not be able and none cross from there to us. The rich man says, then I beg you, Father, send him. The him is Lazarus, sent back from the grave. Lazarus is dead now. Send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And then Abraham, he sees what's being asked. No. They have Moses and the prophets, 29. Let them, that's the brothers, let them hear them. Now the rich man has an argument. He says, no, 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 no. You you don't understand what I'm saying. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, I know they've got Moses and the prophets. They need more than that if they're going to repent. So, so, if someone goes to them from the dead, oh, yeah, bango, they'll, they'll repent. That's got a lot of punch, he says. Now, don't miss the rich man's point. He says clearly he knows his brothers have the words of Moses and the prophets. That's not enough. Their indifference, here's what the rich man is saying. 
their, their indifference isn't, it's not fully their own fault. If the message were dramatic, if it were, if it were just more compelling than just mere revealed truth from God's word, then his brothers would respond. Of course, of course they're not going to be reached just by another sermon. But ramp it up a bit. And they'll repent. They'll respond. And and notice the response from Abraham. Let me just single it out to make it easier to see. It's brief. And it's chilling in its impact. He said to him, if they do not if they, if they do not hear, it's about listening, right? Moses and the prophets, then neither will they, that's future tense, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Don't rush over that lightly. I want to stay with it just maybe a little longer than you'd like me to. Don't miss the main point. This is not, this is not Abraham just saying, No way. They didn't hear the word, so God is not going to give them another chance. If that's what you're seeing here, you're not seeing enough. There's a lot more than that. It's all about listening, and it's the results of not listening that are being talked about here. These brothers, according to the rich man, have lived life and are currently living life not listening to Moses and the prophets. Okay, that's the point. Or, or they, they know about them, maybe half listening to the Old Testament. That's the only scriptures they had. The point of this story is, when you develop the habit of non-listening, the way Proverbs is talking about it. When you develop the habit of non-listening, you, you erase the capacity to be moved even if deeper, more dramatic revelation were to come. The point isn't, no, they didn't listen to the word, so God's not going to give them another chance. The point is, they didn't listen to the word, so it wouldn't do any good, even if someone went back from the dead. That's the point. Do you see what non-listening does? You would think just about anybody would be compelled by someone coming back from the grave. Would you not? Seriously. How how could anybody not be compelled by it? And yet the point of Jesus' story is very crystal clear. They won't be, they're not going to be convinced. If Lazarus goes back, not just as a ghost, raised from the dead. If Lazarus goes back, they're not going to be convinced. How do you know? How do you know, Abraham, that they won't be convinced? Because they didn't hear Moses and the prophets. Ouch! That's striking. Even if I send Lazarus back, it won't help. Why won't it help? Because hearts become hard and cold when God's revealed word isn't treasured, when people don't call out for it, when they don't lift up their voice, when they don't seek it like treasure. 
when they don't value it more than the silver that they've bought for their retirement and their investments, when they don't treasure God's word more than that, their hearts become hard. Once I become unyielding to God's word, I won't become soft and responsive to anything else. Here's what I'm saying. Church can be a place of accelerated growth or it can be a place of accelerated damnation. And it all depends on how people hear the word. So, so, uh, buckle up when you come into God's house. Not just this one, anywhere. Buckle up when you come into God's house. Big stuff is happening. It's God's stuff. Listening to Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, is how we are opened up to receive from God. It shouldn't surprise us. Let me see. Faith comes by, yeah, hearing. Not just reading, hearing. But if such listening is shunned, then the capacity to receive from God starts to dry up. No other form of revelation will long reach a non-listening heart. Be very careful what you do with your ears and your mind when you sit in church on Sunday. Three. Here's a third thing that keeps us from being the kind of listener that trembles at God's word. Sometimes we don't listen because, well, we don't like what we hear. The more relativistic a culture becomes, the more common this attitude will be. We extend the exercising of our self-rights to self-destruction. Our concept of fairness, the way God ought to act, the way God ought to treat different people, our own concept of fairness can smother the lordship of Jesus. And Paul described this kind of heart as it would manifest itself in the last days. Here's what Paul said. This is what's going to happen, Paul said. And we're almost done. I charge you in the presence of God. Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor. He's in Ephesus. It's a pretty big center, and there's a lot going on in that church. If there's ever a church that was inundated by a godless culture, it was the church in Ephesus, all right? So it's very similar to this kind of a situation. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Just stop there for a minute. Look at this charge. Charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. All of that before he starts telling Timothy what he, want, what he wants. And I, I, I'm simply saying, I don't know of any other charge quite like that in the New Testament. In other words, what Paul is going to say to Timothy, he says, I'm telling you this in the presence of God the Creator, Jesus Christ the Judge, who's going to return and watch for what I'm talking about, Timothy. I, that's my charge. In the presence of all that, here's what I want to say to you. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. I wish he hadn't started here, eh? Reprove. 
it should start with encourage or something. Well, why would you start with that? Paul, why lead with that? Reprove, rebuke, then exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Well, time is coming, Paul said. People will not endure. Interesting verb, eh? will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. So we know this is a listening passage, don't we? Because of that. It's about hearing. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So here's the epitome of this end-time tragedy. People will be increasingly... In societies where those in charge, with some exceptions, work to keep their power by pleasing the people. That's where, that's where we're going to be living. Even in communist regimes and dictatorships, leaders at least try to promote the lie that they're giving the people what's best for them. That, that's, how, that's how we work. And more and more of the world's population is coming under the influence of some of Western form of government. People bask in the glory of their rights, which is good, except our Creator's rights really aren't on the table. And so these consumers, they know what they like because they're trained in the art of pursuing self-fulfillment. And, and they are offered every option for satisfying every desire for accumulation, for amusement, for recreation, for comfort. And then these people go to church all over the place. But if the church they go to is worth a dime, it tells them that they have a creator. If the church they go to is worth a dime, it tells them the creator has ultimate rights and authority. And the church, if it's worth a dime also tells people they have a redeemer and that they've been bought with a price and that they're no longer their own. Now, if you don't see a train wreck happening with those two worldviews, and even if people know they're supposed to agree with those Bible truths, and they probably do mentally, they've been trained 24-7 in lifestyles that pull them in a totally different direction. And, and it's, it's just very easy for people like we to resent the truth that we hear when it's actually expected that we lay down our own lives to follow Jesus on a tight, narrow, confining road when everyone else is just flowing along fine, thank you very much, on the broad freeway with ease and fun and excitement and self-rule and self-fulfillment. That's what Paul writes to Timothy and says, <laughs> Timothy... Let me tell you where this is going. Let me tell you where this is going. And he's not guessing. He's speaking. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul. He tells young preacher Timothy that lots and lots and lots of church people aren't going to take it anymore. And even if they sit there and put money in the plate, they're going to stop listening. Or they'll end up half listening. And long before they quit going to church, they'll easily find a whole slew of teachers and preachers and bloggers who will love the feel of a successful ministry so much that they will give the people what they want, just like McDonald's and Amazon 
and the movies give them what they want and they'll just stop listening to God's word. I mean, really listening. Trembling. So there's three reasons people stop listening. First, they're trained to half listen while they split attention with a number of things. Secondly, they think something more dramatic will fill up their hearts more than just the truth of God's word. And three, they can stop listening because they don't like what they hear. And, and the plea of the Spirit of God is, don't do it. Don't do it. Listen deeply, fully, fearfully, reverently to all of God's word and keep your heart open. He who has ears, the only person in the New Testament to say this, there's only one person who ever says it, it's from Jesus every time it's repeated. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What kind of a listener are you? Let's pray.